Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 16, and verse 33. Acts 16.33 for our message from God's eternal book this morning. Acts 16.33 will be found on page 1172, at least in the church Bible. Today's date is January 15th, 2023. And our text for the morning will be in Acts 16.33, Right on down to the end of the chapter in verse 40. And the title of this morning's message is The Power of the Gospel of Grace. The Power of the Gospel of the Grace of God. And we begin with the story of two dim-witted Packer fans. That's all I had to say. (laughs) Two Packer fans who decided they wanted to do some hunting. So they chartered a small plane one day. They chartered a small plane to fly them into a very remote area to do some moose hunting. When the plane returned a week later to pick them up, they had bagged six huge moose. And the pilot looked at that and said, my plane does not have enough power to carry that much weight. And they said, Ah, that's nonsense. We shot six moose last year, and the pilot had the exact same kind of plane that you had. So the pilot reluctantly agreed, but he was right. His plane didn't have enough power, and it crashed shortly after takeoff. When the Packer fans climbed out of the wreckage, one of them asked the other one, do you have any idea where we are? And the other one said, well, I think we're pretty close to where we crashed last year. (laughs) Then there's the story of a man who told his friend I saw Elvis the other day at Home Depot in the power tool section. And his friend said, well, what was he doing in the power tool section? The man said, he returned a sander. That's funny if you're old enough to remember his song, Return to Sender. Well, speaking of 
power tools and planes with not enough power. Here in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul and his co-worker Silas have just been beaten and thrown into prison. But, as we saw in our scripture reading, God sent an earthquake to spring him out of jail. And then they led the jailer to the Lord. And now we're going to see the power of the grace of God begin to work in the life of the jailer. The story begins in verse 33 where we read about the tender loving care that the jailer gave Paul and Silas. Verse 33 says he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. Now when it says that this happened the same hour of the night, (laughs) in case you forgot which same hour of the night this happened, Look back at verse 25 in your Bible and you'll see that it happened in the midnight hour. You know, the hour that you would usually find the jailer sleeping in his bed, not washing the backs of his prisoners. But he was so thankful that Paul and Silas had told him how he could be saved from his sins, that he he just couldn't wait to show his gratitude. And he showed it by washing the gaping wounds in their backs that were left by the lashes from the beating they had received earlier. Now that, friends, is a powerful effect of the grace of God on a man's life. And we're going to see more of the power of grace in just a minute. But first, when verse 33 says that the jailer was baptized, quote, he and all his. In other words, all his family. That means that when the earthquake woke him up and he ran to the prison that Evidently, his family ran with him. And that raises the question of how Paul could have baptized them at a Roman prison. I mean, do you really think that a Roman prison just happened to have a huge tub of water big enough to immerse people? Philippi had a river nearby, but you had to leave the city to go to the river, as we saw and see again in your first reference in Acts 16 and verse 13, where Paul says, we went out of the city to the riverside. So how did Paul and Silas immerse the family of the jailer? The answer is they didn't. 
Water baptism in the Bible wasn't done by immersion. It was done by sprinkling. You say, well, how do you know that? (laughs) Well, we know the purpose of water baptism was to cleanse men from their sins because your next reference says in Acts 22.16, be baptized and wash away thy sins. When water baptism was part of God's program, it was for salvation. It cleansed men from their sins. And in the Bible, spiritual cleansing was always done by sprinkling. As it says in your next reference in Numbers 8, verses 6 and 7. Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. And thus shalt thou do unto them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purifying upon them. If you were unclean in the Bible, the only way to get clean was to be sprinkled with water. As it says again in Numbers 19, verses 18 and 20. A clean person shall take water and sprinkle it upon him that touched one dead or a grave or any of the other things that made you ceremonially unclean. The man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation because the water of separation hath not been, what's that next word? Sprinkled upon him. So he is still unclean. Did you know that God himself someday is going to sprinkle all the believers in Israel right before they enter the kingdom of heaven on earth? At least that's what it says in your next reference. In Ezekiel 36, 24 and 25, Ezekiel the prophet is quoting God himself here, and it says, I will take you from among the heathen, the Gentiles, and gather you out of all countries, Jews are all over the world, and will bring you into your own land, and then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness will I cleanse you. Now, with all those verses about sprinkling, you kind of have to wonder how the tradition of immersion ever got started. And it might be because the Greek word translated baptism in your Bible is the word baptismos. And it means to dip. And I looked up in my dictionary what the word to dip means. Sure enough, it means to immerse. But the thing is, in water baptism, it wasn't the people who got immersed. What's your next reference in Numbers 19, 18, and 19? 
A clean person shall take hyssop and dip the hyssop in the water and then sprinkle the water upon the unclean. It was the hyssop that got dipped. It was the hyssop that got hyssop that got immersed. <laughs> and then the water on the hyssop was sprinkled on the people. Now they tell me that hyssop was some sort of flowery bush of the mint family. <laughs> so getting sprinkled with water from it would make you smell good to God, I guess, and probably to everybody else, too. <laughs> and here's the thing. We know that those Old Testament cleansings were baptisms because Hebrews 9.10 calls them diverse washings imposed on them. And that word washing there is the Greek word baptismos. That means that baptism was an Old Testament rite. It was not a New Testament rite. That explains why the Jews asked John the Baptist what they asked him in John one twenty five. Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ? Don't you notice that they didn't ask him what he was doing, as they would have if he was doing something they'd never seen before. They knew exactly what he was doing from all of those Old Testament diverse washings. They just didn't know why he was doing what Ezekiel said God would do if he wasn't their Christ. If he wasn't God in the flesh, they wanted to know why he was sprinkling people. They expected their God to sprinkle them before they entered the kingdom of heaven on earth. And here's this guy, this John guy, sprinkling them and saying what it says in your next reference in Matthew 3, 2, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was time for the kingdom. So it was time for Jews to get sprinkled with clean water. Listen, John wasn't standing in the Jordan River baptizing people so he could immerse people. He was standing in the river so he could dip his hyssop in the river and sprinkle them and dip it again. You know how Pete Townsend used to windmill the guitar? You know, all you old hippies and you know well that's what he was doing there and that explains why Mark 7 and verse 4 talks about the washing of tables the word washing there is the Greek word baptismos and listen do a little research and you'll you'll find that uh, homes in Israel in that day did not have tubs big enough to immerse a table. But they all had pots big enough to dip some hyssop in and sprinkle those tables, right? And that's how Paul and Silas baptized the jailer during this transition time in the book of Acts. But 
after the jailer washed their stripes and they washed away his sins, it says in the next verse in your Bible, in verse 34, And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now there you see more of the power of God's grace working in the life of the jailer. I mean, the chances that he ever brought home any other prisoners into his house where they would be a danger to his family were slim to none. And slim just left the building, like we used to say, right? I mean, can't you just hear it? Honey, I'm home. Guess who's coming to dinner? One of the prisoners. Yeah, right. You'd have to watch out for flying frying pans, right? But in this case, his wife believed too. So all the cookware remained in the kitchen where it belonged. (laughs) Now, you'll notice that verse 34 says, He set meat before them. I'm guessing that that was probably something his wife usually did. But the power of God's grace was so strong that, that this man who earlier had clapped their feet in stocks said, no, I want to be the one. I want to serve them dinner. The hardened heart of that hardened Roman jailkeeper had been melted by the grace of God. But now, according to religion, this is not what was supposed to be happening if you went around telling people what Paul and Silas told the jailer back in verse 31, where they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Paul told them he could be saved by believing and not by behaving. And religion says, you can't tell a man he can be saved without behaving, because if you do, he won't be old. He'll live in sin instead and do whatever he feels like doing. But the power of God's grace changes what we feel like doing. Look what the Lord said to a guy in Mark 10.52. Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. The Lord told him to go his way and instead he went the Lord's way. Did you catch that? The man who was God in the flesh told him that he could do whatever he wanted to do. But now all he wanted to do was follow the man who had made him whole. So it's true. When you're saved by believing and not by behaving, you can do whatever you want to. But God changes your want to when you're saved by his grace. Now, if Paul had told the guy he has to behave to be saved, 
he wouldn't have been able to do what it says at the end of verse 34 there and rejoiced. If he thought he had to behave to be saved, he would have feared instead of rejoicing, folks. Because if your salvation depends on your behavior, you can never be sure you're saved. Because you can never be sure you behaved well enough and for long enough. But this jailer, he understood that his salvation didn't depend on what he did. It depended on what Christ did for him on the cross. And so if you're here this morning and you've been saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not rejoicing, that means you don't have the sense God gave a jailer, right? Now, what it actually means is you just haven't learned enough about your salvation to feel secure and feel like you can rejoice about it. But you know who was not rejoicing over all of this? <laughs> the rulers who had the apostles beaten and tossed into the huskow, as we used to call it. They had felt this earthquake and they had heard how it had opened the prison doors and how it had dropped the chains off of the prisoners. And it didn't take them long to figure out that that meant that the God of these new prisoners had just shook the planet to free them because they were innocent, because they hadn't done anything wrong. So look what it says in verse 35 in your Bible now. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, let those men go. After they heard that Paul's God had sent this earthquake to make what we called last week a, a surgical strike, one that, that freed the prisoners but didn't kill anybody, they figured they better let those apostles go before their God decided to do something a little less surgical and kill them. So they sent the sergeants to tell the jailer, let those guys go. And in verse 36, the jailer gives Paul the good news. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. Now, you would think that after hearing that, Paul would look at Silas and say, let's blow this pop stand like the tough guys used to say in the movies. How many of you remember those movies? Or uh, like when we used to be kids, we'd say, let's make like a tree and leave. Yeah. You'd think he'd say that. But the Apostle Paul's plans did not include leaving. Verse 37 says, Paul said unto them, they have beaten us, and he's talking to the sergeants too, by the way, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Roman citizens, and have cast us into prison. 
And now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily. But let them come themselves and fetch us out. Paul told the jailer, I got no time for sergeants. How many remember that old sitcom? (laughs) I got no time for sergeants and, and whatever unofficial freedom they're offering me here. Now, the reason for that is because, as you saw, not just the Apostle Paul is a Roman citizen, Silas is as well. And it was against the the laws of the Roman Empire to beat and imprison a Roman citizen unless he was condemned by a Roman trial. So when those bozo rulers publicly jailed Paul, he demanded that their release be just as public. And it wasn't because he was worried about his reputation. He was trying to protect the reputation of the gospel of grace. He knew that eventually the whole world would hear about this. And he wanted the world to know that the apostle of grace had done nothing wrong had not been condemned in a Roman trial. And what Paul was also trying to do was put the fear of Rome in those guys, and it worked. Because in your next two verses, beginning in verse 38, it says, And the sergeants told these words to the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. So Paul got the public release that he was looking for. He had them falling all over themselves trying to keep from getting in trouble with the emperor and the Roman government. Can't you just picture the walk of shame that those rulers had to go through to go down to the prison with their tails tucked between their legs and their heads hanging down and publicly admit that they were wrong to put those guys in jail. And listen, the public humiliation that Paul gave those rulers, that's a picture of the public humiliation that the Lord gave some rulers you read about in Ephesians 6.12, where it talks about principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high heavenly places. As we've talked about many times in the past, folks, heaven has rulers just like earth has rulers. And heaven's rulers fell when Lucifer fell. And when Lucifer got Adam to fall into sin, Satan and his host took humanity captive. And he's been holding men captive ever since. But God Almighty did something about it when he had his son die on the cross for us. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says that on the cross he was 
blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. That's talking about the law of Moses written by the hand of God, it says in the Old Testament, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, just like they nailed him to that cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross that he just mentioned. Now that spoiling there is not the kind parents gave their kids last month at Christmas. It's the kind you hear about when men talk about the spoils of war. And to the victor go the spoils. When a nation conquered another nation, they spoiled them of their possessions. And when the Lord Jesus Christ won the victory over Satan's host, he spoiled them. He spoiled them of his captives in the human race. And when he spoiled them, he made a show of them openly, just like Paul did to these earthly rulers here. Paul shamed the Philippian rulers for what they did to him. And the Lord shamed those heavenly rulers for what they did to us. He shamed them before the millions of all his unfallen angels, the heavenly host. And he made a show of them openly before all those hosts. Now that's not what human beings saw that day on Calvary's Hill, is it? What they saw was the very opposite. Mark 16, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 15, 16 to 20 says the soldiers clothed him with purple, planted a crown of thorns, put it about his head. And they began to salute him, mockingly, of course. Hail, king of the Jews! They smote him on the head with a reed, and it spit upon him. Bowing their knees, they worshipped him in jest, and mocked him, and then they led him out to crucify him. People saw the soldiers shaming the Lord! And you can bet your bottom dollar that those unseen principalities and powers and rulers, they were shaming him too. They were mocking him as well. Folks, it wasn't until God revealed the mystery to the Apostle Paul that we learned that the Lord was shaming them behind the scenes and spoiling them of their captives. And that spoiling was not the only public humiliation that the Lord gave Satan's rulers before that heavenly host that day. Look what also happened behind the scenes in Ephesians 4.8 where Paul says that when the Lord ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. After the Lord rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven 40 days later, right? That verse says, when he did, he led captivity captive. Say, what does that mean? (laughs) 
Well, the only other time in the Bible where it talks about leading captivity captive, folks, is back in the Old Testament when the, when the Canaanites took the Jews captive. And then in your next reference, Deborah and Barak rescued them. And the Bible calls that taking captivity captive. Judges 5.12, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive. So to lead captivity captive means to make captives of the men who held your people captive. That's what Deborah and Barak did to the Canaanites. That's what the Lord did to Satan's host when he ascended into heaven. At the cross, he spoiled them. Spoil them of our souls and set us free. But at his ascension, he took them captive. And Ephesians 4 8 says, He gave gifts unto men. Say, so, well, what kind of gifts did he give men? He gave us the gifts of the thrones that those principalities and powers are sitting on. Someday we're going to be the rulers of heaven. And don't you know that that just humiliated Satan and his host. If you don't think it did, go home and read Robin Hood. And, and imagine how wicked Prince John felt when King Richard came back, stripped him and his gang of thugs of their positions in the government and gave them to Robin and his merry men. I mean, that's, that's how humiliated Satan was at the ascension when the Lord took his throne and gave them to us. Well, after Paul set things right in Philippi here, he left to preach elsewhere. But before he left, he did one more thing. Something we read about in verse 40, the last verse of our text. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Before Paul left, he stopped to comfort this new church family that had sprung up in Philippi that was meeting at the home of the first convert, Lydia. But now in verse 40 there, did you notice that it says they went out of the prison? You know what that means, don't you? It means that after the jailer took them into his house, fed them a sumptuous meal after they got done eating, Paul said, all right, time to go back to prison. And you can bet the jailer probably said, I'm not putting you back in my prison. And that's when Paul had, had to explain to him that while the government was wrong to jail him, God's people respect the authority of the government even when they're wrong. And he refused to leave the prison till those rulers decided to officially release him. So after supper was done, 
they had the jailer walk them back to the prison and lock them back up for the night. Now, if you want to talk about the power of God's grace, that's it. Most believers rebel when the government's wrong, but grace believers shouldn't. And the power that we show when we submit to the government, even when they're wrong, is power like nobody's ever seen. And all of that, all of that is a picture of how the Lord freed us at the cross but he refuses to take us to heaven at the rapture until Satan's host is willing to acknowledge that they were wrong to imprison us. Take us captives. Now you say, well, when are they going to do that? Well, you'll notice that your last reference in Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And we're going to have to pass through the air to get to heaven at the rapture. And that's when Satan's host is going to officially release us from our prison here on earth. But now, look at verse 40 again. Who are all these brethren at Lydia's house that we're reading about there? I mean, before they tossed Paul and Silas in the slammer, <laughs> the only brethren meeting in Lydia's house were the members of her house. Remember, she believed on the Lord with her house too. But I read that and it sounds to me like there's more than just her family there, doesn't it? Sound like that to you? So if I'm right, where did all these other believers come from? Well, I think there's two things. Two things that suddenly grew the Philippian church. First, when the people who heard Paul preach down at the riverside in that ladies' Bible class and, and during the days when that demon-possessed gal was falling around, he's preaching all that time. People are hearing what he's saying. When people saw after that preaching, when they saw God miraculously shake the planet to, to set those guys free, a lot of people believed on their God. But secondly, when people heard that the apostles didn't run when God freed them, they knew their God must be the true God. Now both of those are, are really powerful testimonies that their God was God. But which of those two kinds of testimony are still available today? Listen, God is not shaking prisons and working miracles to get you out of prison today. But today you can give a powerful Pauline testimony to the world by doing what Paul did and respecting the authority of that government. And when First 40 says that the apostles comforted the brethren, wouldn't you think it would be the other way around? <laughs> I mean, it was the apostles who'd just been savagely beaten and tossed into the big houses, we used to call it, in those same tough guy movies. <laughs> but while Paul 
and Silas are singing in prison, the brethren are outside of prison worrying about them. <laughs> so Paul and Silas had to comfort them. And folks, there is your final example of the power of God's grace. It can turn you from being someone who needs comfort when you're afflicted to someone who can give comfort in the midst of your afflictions. And that, my friends, that's a testimony that screams that you have something that unsaved men don't. You've even got something that most saved men don't. You've got the power of God's grace. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your grace. We thank you that religion's wrong. That the gratitude we feel for the salvation you freely give us motivates us to want to serve you. May we feel that motivation today. May we feel that gratitude today. And may we follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul as he lived and breathed to do your will. We pray it all in the Savior's name. Amen.